Last week, we made our way through the second part of <clears throat> Paul's list of things we should be putting to death in Colossians 3. So we've covered now um, sexual immorality, impure passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which I think all amount to idolatry. And then um, last week, we covered anger and wrath, malicious speech, abusive speech, and lying. And there are two overarching things which I've emphasized about the items on this list. First is that none of these are things that we stop doing in order to be saved. It's not a list of parameters, qualifications that we have to meet in order for Jesus to love us. All of these are given so that we can identify the remnants of sin in our lives and put it to death. And so I focused entirely on this idea that you have a scriptural imperative. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you because this reality over here exists. When we come to faith in Christ, he becomes king in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds. As such, what he does is he dethrones sin from the, the place of uh, tyrannical rulership in our lives. Sin no longer reigns in our hearts and minds, and we no longer find that we must obey its mandates. But <clears throat> he does not remove sin entirely from us. Um, The, the way that Reformed people love to say this, and I'm reticent to say it because it makes me feel icky, but anyway, it's good. It just, I have, I need to go back to therapy, right? Um, the way that Reformed people say this is sin no longer reigns, but it remains. It's a very concise and well-organized way to put it. Um, so, so while sin doesn't reign in my mind anymore, whew, it's certainly still there, right? Right? All right. I mean, I can hear the baby. I ought to be able to hear a few of you, too. That was not uh, designed to, as a rebuke or anything. I can hold the baby if you need me to. The commission of Christ, then, is, hey... I want you to go kill sin wherever you find it in, in the tangle of your own thoughts and desires. Does that make sense? The mistake that I see Christians making, and there, there's two, one kind of feeds back into the other, but the, the two main mistakes I see Christians tend to make here, and, and you, you see this by and large in church history, there's this tendency for Christians to view this commission as external rather than internal. What that means is Christians have a reputation, whether we like it or not, for being people who seek and destroy sin in other people's lives rather than in our own, right? The second mistake is to the degree we do or do not put the remnants of sin to death within ourselves, we assign that degree of merit to ourselves. So let me say that a different way. If the commission of Christ, the obedience to which is for my joy and for my satisfaction, if the commission of Christ is to kill sin in my own heart wherever I find it, and, and uh, 
I spot it, I, I find some sin in my heart, and I put that sin to death, that sin killing goes into the evidence column for my salvation, right? If I find sin in my heart and instead of killing it, I indulge it, I succumb to temptation, I feed the lion rather than kill it, that goes in the evidence column against my salvation. So this suggests I am saved, this suggests that I'm not. Now the outcome of thinking this way about Christ's commission to kill sin in our, in our lives is that at some level, our assurance or our confidence in the work of Christ rises and falls in us depending on how well we're doing any given moment at killing sin. So when I've been behaving badly, when I, like, and you don't have to hit the rewind button very far. You can get to the last thing. When you're in it, like you're in it, you know it. Uh, when I've been indulging sin is, and, and living as though Christ were not king in my heart, I probably, probably am not a Christian and I should await the wrath of God. But when I'm behaving well and killing sin and living as though Christ is king in my heart, well, then I probably am a Christian and I should await the blessing of God. The really fascinating part about this, this kind of meritorious view of obedience is that either result, either result, whether I'm killing sin or I'm indulging sin, either result leads back to the first mistake. Because if I'm doing a good job of killing sin, then I start noticing all the people who aren't and pointing out their insufficiencies and failures, right? And if I'm failing to kill sin in my own life, then I start looking for somebody who's failing worse, so that I can justify myself by comparison. Um, the outcome, you know, being the aforementioned reputation that Christians have. We think we're better than non-Christians or Christians who aren't as righteous as we are. The right way to view the commission of Christ to kill sin in our lives is to view our obedience as a consequence or the effect of our conversion. And we kind of read this uh, earlier this morning in Ephesians 2. In fact, flip there real quick. Uh, Ephesians 2.12, which is probably, in my Bible, it's like five pages back from where we're at. Uh, Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So, all right, look, if you tuned out during that because you're like, uh, the, the Jew-Gentile stuff in the New Testament is of no interest to you, then think about this question instead. Why has the hostility between, if, if it has been, if it has been, and maybe it hasn't, and I like to decide uh, whether or not the hostility between you and God has been torn down by, by whether or not when I look at you, you're paying attention while I'm preaching. But if the hostility between you and God has been torn down, why has that happened? How did it happen that if you were far off and now you've been brought near, how did it, did it happen that you've been brought near? What does he mention in this passage is the, the, uh, the agent, the propellant, I don't know, 
the catalyst. The interest of Christ was the cause, right? The blood of Christ is the cleansing agent. The body of Christ, which was broken, is the payment. But look really carefully at the beginning of both verses 13 and 14. We're still in Ephesians 2, right? Now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then 14, for he himself is our peace. So in Christ, you've been brought near. Christ himself is our peace. So what's the cause? What's the cause of you having access to your heavenly father? Well, it's Christ. It's you being in Jesus Christ. Our proximity is what's meaningful, not our performance. Uh, learned that trick, by the way, from a black pastor. Uh, I won't tell you his name because a lot of the stuff he says is heretical, but I really, I like how he, he finds words like that. It helps connect the dots in my mind. Our pro he, he didn't tell, I came up with that, but the whole P thing. Our proximity is what's meaningful, not our performance. To what? To Jesus. And where do we need to be in order to be rescued from the hostility that exists between sinner and creator? Well, we need to be in Christ, not near him, in him. So your salvation is not made permanent by your obedience. Your salvation is made permanent by his obedience. So whatever success I have in killing the remnants of sin in my life, of, you know, fulfilling that commission, that success is not proof of my merit as a Christian. It's proof of Christ's possession of me. It's evidence that I belong to him. Any level of success at killing sin cannot be because you're so holy and righteous and pure. It's because he is so good and the relationship that he's created with you is efficacious in redeeming you from sin. Uh, we're going to like eventually stand before him, right? I mean, maybe you don't believe that, but those of us who are... Um, Christians who believe our Bible think that the day is going to come when all humanity will stand before God in judgment. Those of us who are Christians are going to be welcomed in, right? And, and immediately when we see him, according to the scriptures, we're going to look a lot different. Like when we see him, we're going to be like him, not physically, but just like, I don't know how much of this is just the effects of sin and how much of it's gravity. What? Mostly gravity. Yeah, but you're, you know, it, the aches and pains and the overweightness and whatever consequences you're suffering right now from life in a sin-fallen world, those will be gone. And if we see one another there, and I hope we will, right? Like we'll be kind of like by church and then there'll be <laughs> games annually to compete against other churches. Anyway, <laughs> when we see each other there, what, what we will do is marvel. Like, I'm going to look at Andy, and I'm going to marvel. I'm going to be like, wow, Andy, you, that's a, you look amazing. And he's going to look at me, and he's going to go, who are you? Oh, James, amazing. And not one of us is going to say to the other person, you really did a good job of getting here. We're all going to say, Jesus did a really good job of getting us here. Amen. So 
uh, every ounce of sin killing that we engaged in will immediately be seen as a consequence of what Jesus Christ has done for us, not what we did for ourselves. Tracking with me? All right, well, that begs the question. And it, I mean, it comes up in all of, almost all of Paul's epistles. Like, well, if I'm not securing or enhancing or augmenting my salvation by being obedient to God, then why bother doing it? If sin killing isn't augmenting my salvation, why bother killing sin? Uh, and I think... I mean, pretty obviously, because all of us know that our ultimate satisfaction, our, our flourishing in this life, our joy, our comfort in this lost and dying world, those things are augmented by our obedience. The experience of being a Christian is improved when we are not all tangled up in, and, and mired in sin, right? So it's practical. When we indulge the flesh, when we sin, we experience the gratification of the old nature. Like, it, if we didn't like it, we wouldn't do it. I sin because I like to sin. I like the way it makes me feel, or I like the way it makes me look, or what it, like. It's not as though there's no benefit to sinning, but it's a temporal passing benefit. And what it does is it grows the lion's appetite within us, and it leads quickly to fear, shame, and guilt. That's the outcome in, in, in temporal terms of sinning. When we kill the remnants of sin in our own hearts and minds and lives, we experience the gratification of Christ within us. And that's lasting. And that grows our appetite for righteousness. And it leads quickly to joy, contentedness, and more love for him. And what you learn the longer that you walk with Jesus is as gratifying as it is to sin, especially when it's your pet sin, whatever that is, um, <laughs> the payoff to resisting and killing sin is way better than the payoff to giving into it. Now, do I have to learn it afresh every day? Mm-hmm. But I know it now. So the outcome, the effect is I'm killing sin. What's the cause? If the, if the outcome is that I'm killing sin, what's the cost? I am in Christ. I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So when I hear Jesus tell me to kill what remains of sin, I'm anxious to obey, not in order to secure my salvation, because that's already been secured. I'm anxious to obey because it's now an inseparable part of who I am. I'm his. I want to be like him. This is almost a safe litmus test for whether or not you're a Christian. Do I have the desire to kill sin? Understand, all of us have the desire to hide sin. But do you have the desire to kill it? And if you don't, it may be worth further investigation as to whether or not you've come to Christ. So the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write these lists all through his epistles with the function of informing us of exactly what kinds of things we should be putting off, getting rid of, and killing. Praise God if you're still paying attention, right? Let me bring us back to an earlier point. I said I see two errors. Remember? 
the church by and large is viewed as a bunch of people who think they're better than everybody else. And it's because there's been this tendency historically among Christians to view the commission to kill the remnants of sin as an external commission rather than an internal one. So we have a habit of running around looking for sins to exterminate in everybody else. Um, second, to whatever degree we do manage to put the remnants of sin to death within ourselves, we view that success as meritorious rather than consequential. We look at it as something we've earned or accomplished rather than something that's happening as a result of our new identity. The outcome of that ends up being the first error. I either need to justify myself because um, I feel bad about my sin, so I'm going to find somebody that's worse than me, which isn't hard to do, right? Um, or I think I'm better than everybody because of my success at killing sin. I become puffed up and arrogant. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is this. Genuine holiness does not lead you to think more highly of yourself. And that brings us to verse 11. So Colossians 3, verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So those of you who like make it a hobby to study scripture, or if you've ever made it a profession to study the scriptures, are possibly cringing inwardly over the fact that it appears I intend to make an entire sermon out of verse 11. And what, what you're trying to do is guess if I'm going to grind the social justice axe or if I've got a new uh, kind of angle to take on it. Or you're cringing because you've heard preachers tip their hat to the text and then go on to rail against whatever milieu they don't like in the culture. And single verse sermons are uh, usually the jumping off point for that kind of atrocity. Or maybe you're cringing because every gospel preacher has a legalistic bent and you've been waiting to find out what mine is and maybe this is it. And I'm not going to make you any promises. I am only preaching one verse though. What we have here are seven groups of people listed, and I'm not bad at counting. I'm putting circumcised and uncircumcised together uh, because for my purposes, I need to skip the history lesson. The Scythians roamed this area of the map and just talk about how maybe this relates to our culture, all right? Greeks represent the upper crust. So this is Washington, D.C. and Hollywood. These are uh, Ivy League educated uh, bankers and lawyers. Those are the Greeks. They're multilingual folks who throw parties during which the fates of entire countries get decided. Jews represent the religious class. So these are folks who are uh, in America, they're like careful to observe religious traditions. It's important to them to have their children baptized and attend confirmation. Or it's important for their children to walk the aisle and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. These are people who probably attend church pretty regularly. They don't drink or smoke publicly. Uh, they vote for whoever seems least likely to promote a lot of debauchery. Unless it's Donald Trump and then a giant exception gets made. They're concerned about morality, school curriculum, and their kids making good grades. That's the Jews. 
religious class in America. Circumcised and uncircumcised represent the Presbyterians versus the Reformed Baptists. Or perhaps they represent the Charismatics, all of them versus John MacArthur. They are subclasses of the religious class. These are the ones who are serious about doctrine and theology, uh, perhaps mainly as it relates to arguing against the other side. They attend church whenever the doors are open and think people who don't understand all the finer points of my doctrine are not as serious a Christian as I am. Uh, they insist on homeschooling, generally. Uh, they think eschatology is more important than you do. They boycott things all the time. Uh, and their women love a good pyramid scheme. <laughs> so we've all been there, right? Uh, barbarians are the unchurched middle class. So they either skipped college or went to a state school, so they aren't upper class. Their primary goal is to own a boat someday. They've probably become overweight from alcohol consumption they work hard and they play hard. Their kids aren't polite, but they're not necessarily headed to prison. Their marriages are constantly on the rocks and you can find them gathered in uh, NFL, NHL, NBA, MLB cathedrals all across the country, but you won't see them at church unless it's Easter or Christmas. Scythians are the rednecks and hillbillies. And I don't mean like country music portrays. Right? These are not attractive people that wear jeans and cowboy hats. These are the toothless, uncultured, didn't finish junior high school, meth-addled, severely over or underweight, been to prison a few times, shower once a month, own more animals than property, losers in life. That's who the Scythians were in, in, in those days. And, and you can see how that relates to our culture, how it makes sense. Things haven't changed a whole lot, right? Did I lose you all? You all? No. What? Slaves are the serving class. These are the immigrants. So they have little communities within our communities. They keep to themselves. They work hard. They want good things. They probably also belong to the religious class. Um, they're paid pennies, though, for working harder than the barbarians. And they aren't willing to break as many laws as the Scythians. So that they, they don't usually get ahead. And they don't have 401ks because they're probably not even supposed to be here uh, by law. Free are my favorite. These are the backcountry militia members. Uh, nobody's fooling them. They don't believe any propaganda, right? They have guns and are hoping to use them. Um, they grow or manufacture and sell whatever makes them money. And then they're in the news every few years for opposing the ATF or the DEA or the IRS, which rallies the support of the Scythians and barbarians, and less publicly, the support of the religious class, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised. Now, here's the thing. None of these groups are any particular color in our culture. They just aren't. I believe that the elite would have you agree with them that these, these classes can be broken down by color, but they can't. You see folks of every ethnicity occupying these different groups of kind of classes of people in our culture. Um, however, people do tend to mistrust at least three of the groups that they are not in, that they don't think that they are in, 
right? And that's how they keep us at each other's throats uh, for the four years uh, that come in between presidential elections. Here's what your Bible just told you. Here, there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So something happens to you when you come to Christ. Think about it, all right? If you did, how did you come to Christ? And maybe it's, maybe it's been a while, so it's hard to remember, but let's think about it this way. What have we seen in this epistle? Just flip back to chapter one. Take a little trip down memory lane here. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, Maybe you weren't here, and I think we were actually at the auditorium at that time. Or maybe you've forgotten, but I want to remind you what I pointed out here. Hope is the fountainhead of love for the brethren. That's what I said. And, and the reason that I said it is because of what the text says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have this love for all the saints. So waning, waning diminishing affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ is always a signal fire to your heart that you have a waning affection for Jesus himself. So when I can kind of take or leave fellowship, when I can kind of take or leave church, and I don't, it doesn't have to be this one, but, but you don't, eh. Like people love to say, well, I'm spiritual, but I don't like to go to church because I think they just want your money or whatever excuse. Like when, when you don't have to gather with the people of God, it's always an indication that your affection for Jesus Christ has diminished because these two things are inseparably linked. He has made it so that they are. Uh, I said we need to appreciate the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven in order to enhance or increase the affection that we have for one another on earth. So we went back to the gospel. And, I, and we, we went through the whole thing. And I'm going to do this every 18 months or two years. We're going to hit it again. What's the good news? Good news pushes back bad news. What's the bad news? Well, sin in the fall. Everything's broken because of sin. Nothing works quite the way it's supposed to. I pointed out that everyone knows that everything's broken. Like you know it in your guts. Things don't work like they're supposed to. I don't work like I'm supposed to. My parents don't work like they're supposed to. My kids don't work like they're supposed to. So we feel it and then we're kind of like always frustrated, if not angry. Or we're angry if not losing our tempers. Or we're losing our tempers if not losing our minds. Or we've lost our minds and we live in San Francisco on the street. Right? Like that's the final outcome on earth for us. You, you either find the balm or you lose your brains. Because everything's broken. I pointed out that we try to fix what we know is broken within us one of four ways. There's the bandage of self, which is uh, a better version of me will satisfy. 
So let me go hit the gym, let me get a better job, let me get a college degree, whatever. There's the bandage of others. Approval from other people will satisfy. So let me try to ingratiate myself to everyone. So let me try to impress this girl. Let me try to impress this guy. It doesn't work. And then there's the bandage of the world, which is just like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Let me go try everything that the world has to offer, and that doesn't fix what's broken in us. There's fourth, the bandage of religion, which is if you boil it right down, here's what it is. It's let me create a moral system that I can obey by which I can put God in my debt. Look how good I'm being, God. Now you have to fix what's broken in my life. So we operate with this low-grade frustration that even though I got up early and did my devotions, God still didn't bless me today. I got fired or I suffered or the car broke down or whatever because we're just on this performance treadmill all the time. None of those things work. Then we discover the gospel. Psalm 14 lets us know, hey man, everybody's running to sin. Uh, nobody is righteous, right? So self-improvement doesn't work. Isaiah 2, stop regarding man whose breath is in his nose. Like getting approval from other people, it, it's like they're not worth more than you. So what difference does it make? They're, they're in the same boat you are. And if all of the Senate and all of the kings and all their horses approve of us, it's not, it's not going to fix cancer. We still have the ultimate problem. We're going to die. Romans 3, by the works of the law, no man will be justified. Well, there goes my religious moral system by which I'm going to bring God into my debt. It's not going to work. And the writer of Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 says, look, I've been out there. I've seen everything the world has to offer. It's all vanity and striving after wind. And so you can like take their word for it that winning the lottery won't fix all your problems or you, or you can go try and do it yourself and find out the hard way. It doesn't work. None of it works. So, so how did you come to Christ? Well, you had to have come to some understanding of what Colossians 1 communicates. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God. That God wrapped himself in flesh and came to this earth in order to rescue you from sin. And all those who put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's it. That's the only way. How'd you come to Christ? Did you come with something that pleased him? Did you come with something that impressed him? Did you come with something that delighted him? Let's do it this way. Did you come with something that pleased him or did you just bring your sin? Did you come with something that delighted him or did you just bring your guilt? Did you come with something that impressed him or did you literally just bring your shame? Did you come with something that blessed God or did you just bring your fear? Did you come with something that, that, that was heavy? Were you weighed down? Did you come tired and worn out? Did you come with a college degree or did you come with none? Did you come with religious pedigree, like your whole family come up in the church, or did you come with none? Did you come with lots of guns? Did you come with all your teeth? Yours? <laughs> did you come with millions of dollars? Did you come with your homeschool curriculum? Did you come with your prison record? Did you come with your boat? Did you come... <laughs> 
Did you come with your second or third marriage? Did you come with your past abortion? Did you come with your sexual immorality? Did you come with your biblical ignorance? Did you come with your 401k? Did you come with nothing because you were so young? You like, you can't even remember a time you didn't love Jesus? How'd you come? Did any of that matter? What did you find when you came to Jesus? Did Jesus judge you? Did he scoff at you? Did he demand that you prove yourself? Did, did he make you go clean yourself up first? Did he tell you that you were too poor? Did he tell you that you were too rich? Or did he just take you in his arms and promise to love you and make you like himself? Yeah, so you came with nothing. And if we had no advantage other than God's gracious, merciful love for us, what does that mean for how we view one another? So here, here, there is no Hollywood or DC. Right? There's no Greek. There is no Jew. There's no religious class. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, state college or no college. There's no redneck, backwards, uneducated buffoon. Here, there's no slave, no free. But Christ is all and in now, if Christ is in you and he's in me, then it probably, like, I probably don't need to value you based on all those external factors we just listed. I came with nothing that was impressive to him and he loved me. You came with nothing that was impressive to him and he loved you. We both have the love of Christ abiding in us. It's the great equalizer. We come through these doors, there's no preferential treatment shown. We are all equally destitute when it comes to things that impress God. So let's stop trying to impress one another. And let's certainly not set up little hierarchical structures within the church by which some people wield more power than others. Right? Oh, here's Christ. He's the one who loves the loveless, the one who shows kindness to his enemies, the one who puts no preconditions on his acceptance of you other than that you believe. Did you know you don't have to repent first in order for Jesus to love you? Yeah, at the right time, isn't it? Romans 5, at the right time, while we were sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. He puts no preconditions on your acceptance. The one who promises to never leave you or forsake you, that's Jesus Christ. And the only way this reality stays in our view, the only way we don't fall into the error of looking at one another and hoping to justify ourselves is by constantly remembering that none of these imperatives that we found in Colossians, if you've been raised by Christ, seek the things that are above. Put to death what remains of sin or earthly things within you. Stop lying. No sexual immorality. Like All of these imperatives, none of them are about earning salvation. You got to keep that in view. None of these are about earning salvation. These are about abiding in Christ, loving people, and experiencing the satisfaction that flows from obeying the gospel. There's no thinking more highly of yourself here. Here is Christ, and He is all and in all. Now, what we're going to find, eventually, I'll get there in the upcoming verses, is that the weapons we use in our killing of sin are not gladiatorial weapons. 
So if you get uneasy thinking about killing sins, especially the way that I've painted it, kitten killing, right? Know this, the weapons that he's going to list, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. These are all weapons that get sharpened in this context right here. So we can't have classes of people where we think they're better and they're lesser. It has to be here, there is Christ, and he is all and in all. Amen? Let's pray.